One of the lovely things about these thoroughly good classical music podcasts, if I do say so myself, is the way that we make them, in addition to being unscripted, which is why sometimes it sounds like things are a little awkward. That's usually when we're looking at one another with panic and arise, wondering who's going to speak next. But they're also they're also completely unedited. And in addition to that, they're only ever listened to once, a few hours before the podcast is put live. The benefit of all of that is that we avoid the temptation to apply a bit of spit and polish to the finished product, so that what you end up hearing is as near to the original conversation as is possible to make it. Uh, And so because they're often recorded weeks in advance, listening back to the podcast before it goes live is a bit like receiving a late delivered postcard from a holiday you went on a few weeks ago. It's It's a rather delightful reminder of connections made, things learned, insights discovered and all important stuff reaffirmed. There's nothing else in my professional or my personal life that does that. It's it's a special thing. And they're going down quite well too. People get in contact. That is a lovely, lovely thing. So inevitably, and I really haven't felt able to do this before now, I should like to put in a special ask, drawing your attention to the donate button on the right-hand side of the Thoroughly Good blog at thoroughlygood.me. Sure, these things are a joy to make, but one has to eat after all. Uh, There, that's the dirty business done. Uh, This podcast, the sixth, don't you know, uh, was recorded at my favourite but much maligned hotel bar, The Heights, in St George's Hotel, um, just in front of All All Souls Church in Langham Place in London, and it features music journalist Arian Todas and I talking to violinist Hugo Ticciati. He talks about his new album, White Light, The Space Between. He also talks about why he went without glasses for five years and how that worked out, uh, the challenge of improvisation for classical music musicians, and rock balancing. Uh, Arianne is a violinist herself. You see, that's why I brought them together, so they could do the talking and I could just fiddle with the dials. Uh, Ariane, she got the conversation going. Um, <laughs> what is the criteria for being a string nerd? Uh, liking watching old films of Highfoots and uh, trying to understand how violinists do their vibrato. Okay. And what a good violin sounds like, what makes a good bow. Right. Well, that seems quite normal. That's just good performance practice, isn't it? <laughs> I think there's a connotation with the term nerd that perhaps isn't... Oh, for me, nerd is a good thing. Okay, nerd fine. and geek right. is a compliment Definitely. for me. Yeah, I would say, I say so. Uh, but it's passion. It's about passion and knowledge. Great. Well, that's... Thank God we have that. At least we have... Uh, well, well this some must be, <laughs> At least we have two people on the panel who have that. Um, so, sir, tell me who you are and why you're here. Yes, I'm Hugo Ticciati, violinist, and I'm the founder of a festival called All Modernt. And I think I'm, well, I'm quite sure why I'm here, actually. I'm just sitting here <laughs> drinking a cup of tea. I think we're here to talk about life and music and various album release, a possible festival at Wigmore. I'm not exactly sure where, you, where it will all lead. But What, um, are, you, what are you plying? What, what, are you, what are you selling at the moment? Let's get the dirty stuff out of the way The first. dirty stuff? No, no, I think, I think we're talking about a CD release. Okay, well, Is I that, mean, uh, presumably you've recorded... Uh, you're looking at me like I know. I was hoping that you would. You will know better than I do. Well, to be honest, what I love talking about is just life, and, right. and there's no, no agenda, so I just like to head into things and see what happens. Uh, tell us about the CD, though, now that you've mentioned it. You have to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's, um, it's the first CD for All Modernt. Right. All Modernt meaning unmodern. And a festival I started in Sweden about seven years ago. And it's a CD which is called White Light, The Space Between. And it's a meeting of 
sort of contemporary, I would say minimal music, contemplative music, Arvel Pert, Petrus Vasques, um, John Taverner, together with improvising, together with indie music, together with the Beatles. Um, and it's a sort of a exploration of, of life through, through sound, I guess. Um, you're smiling a lot when you tell me about that. What is it that excites you about that? Uh, everything excites me about okay. life, basically. And about, about, about music, I think, for, for me, yeah, sound, um, living through sound, experiencing life, being with people, um, and the CD or the album is a couple of CDs is very much um, a reflection of my philosophy of what I'm doing here um, as, as a musician and it's it's finding connections it's connections with other people connections with other traditions connections with ourselves and that journey and that discovery um, and together with other people and I think yeah discussions like that is also part of that is being here together sharing thoughts that's that, that sounds like a really specific and focused uh, this is going to sound really ridiculous, but a really specific and focused uh, strategy that you have there around making music and performing it and experiencing it. Where does that come from? It comes from, I think, a lot of silence. It comes from a space of curios curiosity and a lot of questioning myself, uh, questioning others, um, a lot of meditating, a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, um, a lot of practicing open strings for hours and loving it um, and just immersing oneself in what one loves doing what's the I think I might know what you mean by practicing open strings a lot and, and loving it but what is it that you get from it I realize now I'm now interviewing you and that's uh, not really what the point <laughs> of the conversation <laughs> I think there's a for me practice is is a form of meditation it's a f form of repetition and maybe just long open strings this feeling as vibrations in the body feeling that the sound emanating is something one can dive into and, and just be with not thinking why am i doing this close to the bridge or further whatever the the technical aspects are but actually just being being in that process and all the yeah which well, is because i've i've sort of doubled recently in mindfulness and it's it's a quite a big thing at the moment whether it's coloring books or just you know the the apps and things um and i'm really fascinated by the what the similarities between practice because there is you know if you're just listening to your listening to the silence or whatever it is that you're trying to sort of calm down with when you're being mindful and I can see the comparison like you say with like listening to an open string or but there is a difference in practice which is that you in order to get better you do have to judge yourself don't you and isn't that sort of also what you have to not do when you're being mindful or is that <laughs> yeah. is that some is that how you practice though or are you do you find you need to judge yourself in order to practice and does that affect the mindful benefits i i, I think being aware is is a form of a judgment it's a, it's a non-judgmental judgment if that makes it's i think practicing one is aware of one's weaknesses but i wouldn't say it's an act of judging of that it's just like i think with one's um, practicing mindfulness it's a, an awareness of where one is not mindful that's the first step to mindfulness and it's that process that spontaneous process where one then lets go of it and I think performance ultimately is is an act of mindfulness where one is not judging but purely spontaneously performing so I think for me practice it's it's not you're sitting there sort of looking at yourself sort of judging you're, you're aware of everything uh, hypersensitive and embracing that 
and I think and when one's meditating it's, it's a very for me a very similar similar process one's aware of one's thought processes and as one I think improves uh, uh, practicing and playing there's the, the awareness becomes more and more refined. I think it's the same process, I, I, I would say, in, in meditating in many ways, that originally when one starts meditating, it's oh, all these silly thoughts getting in my way, and it's a very basic type of awareness. Ah, oh, right, let's, let's go back to the breathing. And, and I think in practicing, all oh, the bow's crooked, it's not making a nice sound. But I, and I, for me, it's a very similar process, that that sense of awareness becomes more and more refined as one goes deeper into it. But then if your bow is crooked, how do you change that without feeling that as a negative thing? Or is, 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 well, what's the next stage of that process? Your bow is crooked. Then what do you do? Or how, I think how do you feel about it? For me, I think I've always I think of in a way practice and mindfulness in, in four possible four, four steps. Firstly, one's unconsciously not knowledgeable, not aware as it were. So one is doing things wrong, but one is not aware that one's wrong. Then one's consciously aware um, that things are not as they should be. Um, and then so one's consciously unknowledgeable, however, whatever words one wants to use. Then one becomes, I think, consciously knowledgeable. There one starts actually creating things and making things in the process of improving. And then I think then one steps to the point where one's unconsciously knowledgeable or unconsciously aware and one gets to a point where one is one is beyond the, the judgment as it were but it I, but i think that this process is circular it's all of the all of the parts are always interlinked and they're always sort of rotating round but it's always trying to get to that point of pure spontaneity and that all correlates to mindfulness F for, for me um it's it's a very similar similar process and also how does because I mean, when you when I look back to learning violin, uh, and you know, and I mean, I studied up to postgrad, um, but the the the, pr the violin teaching process is it is it can be quite a negative feeling. It can be much more about well, you are out of tune, you're this, you're that, mm. you, and I think a lot of you know from a lot of the musicians I met that it's quite. It's quite scarring. It's quite um, it is. It's quite damaging, mm -hmm. and I know a lot of people who are quite damaged by that, um, and it breeds a certain sort of person. So, how do, do you, does that do you relate to that experience as well? And have you is what you do now has that come out of that sort of experience? Or yeah, I, th I think I, I was lucky in the sense that the teachers I had, and particularly the the, the teacher I had in Sweden when I moved there, em embraced practice and being a violinist in a very non-judgmental way and the way I was taught was was non I do I do think it was very much to do with with my teacher being non-judgmental and it wanting me to discover and, and grow to the best of my abilities without sort of pushing this or doing that but also with a sense of authority knowing what's right and what's wrong and what is the best way and but I think being taught in a way where I also felt she Nina Balabina the, the teacher was also discovering with me it was as though it was a discovery together and I think that that's a unique ability of of the best teachers as though you're with the student in the process with the student discovering together and I think that's a very rare ability for teachers were you were you aware that it was quite unusual I mean I completely understand where you're coming from as I'm as I'm very much into mindfulness and I work as a coach and a lot of the things that you're talking about in your approach to practice is what is applied in the coaching process um, 
But I just wonder whether when you started on that, I'm going to use the J word on the journey, mm. um, were you aware that it was unusual? Or unorthodox, maybe? I was, I, yes. I mean, my, what happened when I, when I went out to study was very unorthodox in the sense that I, I'd had this sort of more traditional training at, at a school, playing with a teacher, studying math, whatever it was. And then went to study in, in university in, in Toronto, very much a sort of institution. You had your lessons. And, and then the, the, the idea, I was, had a place at Cambridge to do musicology. But then I met this, this teacher who said, no, no, you, you, you've got to play and I can, I, I can sort you out. And I had a five minute, 10 minute lesson and thought, yes, this is, this is the one. Um, so I phoned Cambridge and said, I'm, I'm not coming. Wow. And I, bought, <laughs> I would have liked to be uh, present then. <laughs> and I, I bought a one-way ticket to Sweden and, and that in itself was a, obviously a rather unusual step. Yeah. But it was, a, again, it was just stepping out and risking and just taking that risk and believe, just intuitively really believing in it. So although when I look back... My, my my path was weird and, and very un, un, I'm unusual. I'm in no way judging. <laughs> I'm in no way um, judging. But it's at the time it just always felt right, if that makes sense. So I I didn't think it was special or different. I just felt this is right for me right now, mm-hmm. um, and not right for everyone. It is not it's not how I think it should be for everyone. But for me, it was just yes, this is it. Um, this is what I want to be doing, so I love doing it, it feels right. I have no idea where it was leading to, really. And how does that, that practice that you talked about to begin with, um, how does that uh, impact on your performance? I think it's, it impacts in the sense that, for me, the whole process of practicing, performing, improvising, reading, meditating it, it is very much related. Um, and I think... For me, the, the, the art of performance is a, an art of vulnerability. It's an art of showing, showing oneself um, not in, 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 in perfection. It's not offering a perfect product, but just being open and being authentic and being, being true to where one is. And I think the same in practice is it's embracing where one is at that moment in practice. And, and yes, there are lots of things one can do better. And... And, and improve but it's it's and I think yeah not a sort of judging that it's a very it's an openness to this potential and I think concerts what I think so often there's this sort of idea of this it's got to be this finished perfect product mm, mm. here given to an audience who are habituated in a certain way to listen to this this product and for me it's the, the concert to come alive it's, it has to have this vulnerability and a weakness and a sense of sharing something together so there has to be um, jeopardy it, uh, yeah, sense. Uh, uh, yeah, risked. Uh, sort of. I, um, uh, Jeopardy was not the first one no. that would come, come, come to my mind. But uh, <laughs> it's far more about me. I'm, I'm uh, aware of it. I, I think maybe, maybe yeah, <laughs> an open, a vulnerability, a sense of. Um, yeah, it's not all yeah. going to fall apart. Exactly. <laughs> Basically. Right. Um, so when you, once you've reached that state, how do you work with other people and? Do you try and get them, because obviously you have this mm. string quartet, mm. um, how do you, do you try and get them to be on the same plane as you or, how, or do you, how do you sort of reach collective decisions when you're in that way and they may not be? Yeah, I think uh, maybe the, the orchestra, the all modern chamber orchestra is the, uh, the best example because we're 60, 17 people aged 
18 to 45, so an enormous span of, of ages. Some professional soloists playing concertos with big orchestras, others studying. And so there's this wonderful mixture of, of people and artists, and it's a very diplomatic way of rehearsing, where, where we play and we share ideas. And I think, as always, one, one attracts people with the same interests, the same likes. A lot of them meditate. We, we often meditate together. And there's an, an openness um, to really listen. And, and it could be someone who's 18 who suddenly has a wonderful idea. And, and there's apps, they will have no inhibition about saying that because all the others in the group don't feel we're, we're 40 or 35. We've had so much experience that you haven't anything to offer. There's no hierarchy. Um, I mean, it sounds I like think, there's no I think, hierarchy. I think, I think um, it's a lack of hierarchy, which I think is beautiful mm. within small chain. You can't have it with a symphony orchestra of 150. Um, but I think within within a smaller group, you really can. And then you, you've got to balance things with, with decisions have to be made ultimately. But um, the, I, the hope is that one draws everyone and everyone else draws each other t- to make these decisions and create. And then the concert happens and who knows... <laughs> what what decisions they're going <laughs> to hold, if any, and then everyone's creating them in in the moment. And I think it's it's the rehearsal process needs to have the freedom for then the the the, the concert performance and and the, the recording and what everyone's doing has that element of risk and freedom and abandon. But again, it, there there is this, the the backside where there is a sense of insecurity you don't know exactly how this this spiccato is going to be how that writ writ's going to be so there's this sense of having to be on the edge of your seat and listening and and following you must hate planning things um, do, you, well, do you hate planning things do you hate I, bus well, timetables and train timetables <laughs> it was very fun. i did it an experiment when i was when i was 21 to 26 i i've got very i got minus 5 um in both my eyes so if i take off my glasses i can't see anything and I, decided, I read a couple of books on how one through visualization and weird and funky things one could um, see better. So I decided not to wear my glasses for five years. Um, well, wow. I, five what, years wasn't... Like not at all. Not at all. So I couldn't read anything. Oh God, on, I bet you were annoying to um, be with. <laughs> and for example, and bus tables, anything like that, I, I could, could never, never read the time. I could read music, but I'd have to learn everything off by heart to then play it. Uh, so I could read close up, obviously. Um, you I obviously didn't drive. I didn't drive. Really. <laughs> Definitely didn't drive. But there's, it was it was um, amazing. This this sort of freedom from actually specifying everything, deciding all the times. I don't own a mobile at all. Um, so I have to. I have to, if I made a decision or I plan something, that's I meet the person at that time in that place. If I ten minutes. So Before. no, ma- ma- I'm 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 aware of the expression on my face, uh, <laughs> but uh, and I'm not judging it. None of us are judging you, uh, but that means that you un- you don't have a mobile. You don't it's only landlines then. Just land, yeah, landlines. Wow, what is that life like? It's it's rather beautiful. <laughs> calm. <laughs> it's very calm. And wow. But I think so in a sense, it means one has to plan mm. a lot in one sense, because but one then sticks to those plans. It's not the sort of day to day. Everything's changing, and so there is a structure. It's like back in the 80s. Yeah, you'd, you'd, I remember that. <laughs> you'd you'd arrange to meet someone and actually yeah. be there. Exactly, well, I think so. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, but, I, but then obviously there is an enormous... Uh, for my festival and I'm planning for 220 for festivals here in, in, in London. So there's obviously a, a sense of real planning and vision and ideas. But I think it's embracing a planning with the flexibility and knowing that 
in 20 minutes everything might change and just like as you know with performance it's the same thing you, you do plan things and you have ideas but things change like I just um, a couple of nights ago I was, I was playing and I went out just to talk to the audience a bit and the I um, the orchestra weren't, weren't coming on. I thought, what's, what's going on? This is weird. So I went around the back and someone said, hey, so, um, Leviola's broken his string. He's changing. And I said, all right, no worry. I'll, I'll improvise for a bit. So I stood there and said, sorry, audience, just wait for a bit. I'll play for you. You vamped um, until they vamped. were ready. And then <laughs> out of nowhere, the whole orchestra started playing backstage and walking on and improvising <laughs> with me. And it was totally unplanned, um, but has this incredible sort of spontaneity. And, and then we launched into the, we, it was, we were playing a Purcell Overture, which never sounded so good in any rehearsal because it was prefaced by this moment of total freedom and madness. So why do you think, that's, it's incredibly rare that classical musicians improvise like that. Who, 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 were, who were they? That was, my, that was my orchestra. That was your orchestra. Yeah. And, and that was in Sweden. Yeah. And is that something that they're more encouraged to do through folk music? Because in my experience in this country is that people are incredibly reluctant to improvise. <laughs> yes. Um, incredibly through reluctant. Through gritted teeth. <laughs> <laughs> they will not do this. <laughs> I, maybe going back to a similar, similar question that one does attract people who <laughs> attracted a similar weird things and mad madness and the, the people who play play with me generally um are free spirits who like just to play and improvise and we have a, an amazing harmonic singer um in the in the orchestra who will start singing in the middle of the concert um just because he feels like it and um so i think improvising i think in sweden actually the the, the folk music is actually a, a say, very yeah, a very strong there. tradition yeah and it's um i have actually three three players in the orchestra who are very strong folk musicians one plays in a jazz band um so th th it's a very eclectic group and improvising is just a part of what we do it's it's, no, it's not really a, a question do you improvise of course you do as in you you play um improvisation always terrified me and i don't know why that was um i was i always felt at ease when i had music in front of me and there are always other people in my year who were able to just apparently be able to sit at a keyboard and just play stuff. And I, I kind of envied them for that because I didn't, I don't really understand what, what I missed out. You know, what, when was I, when was the lesson when they did improvisation? Well, that's the problem because I don't think there are. And I think we're, we're, we're not taught to improvise. I mean, I was very, very lucky. I had Sheila Nelson as a child and she used to make us play games where we'd stand in a circle and she'd put the hat on someone and play a tune and then you'd have to improvise. So I've never, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, it was only like some cowboy theme or something, but, but it, it broke that sort of sense of fear. And I think the, tr the trouble for classical musicians, I think often is it is about uh, getting things right or it feels yeah, contrary yeah. to how you were taught. It, it is very much about getting things right, being right, being in time, being in tune. It's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. Whereas actually in improvisation, often it's the mistakes that are the, the best bits. Yes. But, but there's a real fear of making mistakes that I think is sort of not conducive to improvising. So you experienced that fear with improvisation as well? No, well, or you don't no, well the thing is, I, well, so I was in a band for 20 years um, and I basically started off a little bit wary about improvising but actually by the end really almost love it too much so that now when I play I mean I <laughs> let, 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 the music let me preface anymore. this by saying this I'm I'm I am a complete amateur but um that now that I I don't over prepare let's put it that way okay <laughs> <laughs> did you experience any so you know when I th when I think of improvising 
uh, I feel slightly exposed as though I'm going to completely show myself up uh, and I wonder whether that's a common experience I'm looking at I'm looking at the person who can do it mm-hmm. in the hope that you can give me some insight yeah I think what was this, what we're talking about before the vulnerability and improvising is the most vulnerable form of, of performance in many ways because one has no idea what one's gonna, what's going to happen and one is following this this instinct you want spirit whatever the energy um, and one doesn't know where it's leading any more than, than the audience does and, and that's a beautiful experience to feel this where, where, where are we going and to feel them also experiencing that and ultimately I think what, what you're saying is we that needs to be the experience when we're performing Bach or Beethoven because we need to recreate that music every note every time we play it afresh it's never it, we never the sense that we're we're reading from a score um, this interpretation it, it's a, every time we perform it's, it's a recreation it's a reinvention of of these music of this these notes which suddenly come alive and they only exist off the score in in live performance so if you've got to adulthood i'm thinking of myself now i'm sorry to make it about me but if you've got to adulthood and you haven't done it or you haven't successfully done improvisation is that something that you can subsequently learn or is it going to be really really hard work to unlearn all of those sort of Things. I'm, sure you can, I'm sure you can learn anything. I'm positive about that at any stage. Uh, maybe just in the privacy of your own room. Maybe. <laughs> Is that what you're starters. suggesting? <laughs> that I should keep it, keep it to myself. No, but I have to say, then being, I mean, for me, being, the, being in the band and being able to learn with people in the band was an incredible way to do it. Because you do get better and you evolve and you feel freer and you will find out what works and what doesn't work. And... and you know, your whole process evolves. Uh, so we start a band, John. Go on. <laughs> start a band. Oh, dear God. You don't know what you're saying. Bless. Um, uh, maybe, maybe I had the dumb... I, th- I think life is a, the great art of improvising. We are ev- all the time we're improvising. And we walk across the road, we see a, a car on the right. Do we go? Do we not go? And if we're just living by sort of, sort of motor reactions and habit then we wouldn't live very long so I think it's for me that it's the ingrained habits when one's older it's not actually the instrument it's it's more the mind which is the problem and it's and it's it's this idea that um, everything has to be planned and perfected as what you were saying that's the way many of us are taught but I think it's not only embracing improvising as a musician but in life and the two go very much hand in hand um what does the audience have to do then because you were talking about you're talking about the sort of the magic of of um that openness and that mindfulness approach uh to rehearsing but when it comes to the concert is there something that the that the audience needs to do in order to experience it in a different way i I think there there are possibly two two answers that one is that the audience their immediate response is they re- respond to how we are on stage. As an audience, if someone walks onto stage tense, the audience becomes tense. If you walk onto the stage, um, I don't know, jumping up and down, laughing, there, there's a, a similar... Re- well, maybe... <laughs> they're going to jump the, the, the audience probably won't jump and dance, but there's a sort of... A, I get you, I get definitely you. a reciprocal reaction. Um, Do you think that, that, that if, if that happens, if the audience is reacting to someone coming on stage tense that the audience is necessarily aware? 
I, I mean, they're sort of like micro-reactions. Exactly, micro-reactions. But I also think one is, one is very aware. I, you, you know the feeling when you, you see someone walking on stage and they're tense. You, you do have this sort of feeling, of, oh, poor person, let's hope they get through this concert. A bit concert. like Theresa May, I suppose, yeah. actually, whenever she walks up to the podium, because there is that... And you do, but the reaction when I see her walking up to the podium is... Oh my God! So yeah, yeah I, I so, know. What so you I mean. think there's that, but then also I think audiences are also creatures of habit. They they go to a concert, they have the the interval, they have their drinks, they have their applause after the third movement, not the second. And I think this these ingrained habits, I do think, and this is maybe a strong term, but makes their listening passive as opposed to aware and I think what I, I think that the world the classical world needs is is to reawaken this sort of really active listening a real sort of sense of engagement mm. which again is a sort of improvisatory engagement mm. one doesn't know quite what's going to happen I think that's why when we on stage do things everything the lighting our movement the choreography is has has a very important role and I think not doing things traditionally has the ability to wa- awaken that. Well, I'm, here's a provocative question. Do you think you can... Com- so you have, let's say you have two violinists, one go or cellist or violist, whatever, goes, one goes on stage in exactly the right way that they're supposed to engage the audience. Uh, they look excited. They, and they, at the end of the piece, they do all the right things. They, they look energetic. Uh, and you have one who's very shy-looking and doesn't, is a little bit awkward... But the the second one is a much more refined, more exciting, more improvisatory, whatever player. Do you think, I guess, number one, do you think the audience can tell? And number two, does it matter who is the best player and whether, in a way, the, the sort of stuff around the, the, the behaviour around the playing is, if, it, if it's designed to make the audience interested, is that, is that almost... A way of not deceiving is wrong, but is, is it better yeah. to? No, I, I totally understand. I'm, I'm not articulating no, no, I understand. Well, no, you are. Yes, <laughs> no, that makes which, would, sense. Which would you rather see? Somebody who gets it wrong, but is the most exquisite player and doesn't have that. Uh, but I don't, don't think there's, uh, there's no right and wrong here at all. I think you can you can come on the most beautifully nerdy fashion and you 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 encapsulate the audience with your own character, your own spirit. I'm not when I the examples I gave walking on laughing that was just maybe a silly example. I don't think. This is a matter of showmanship. I think it's a matter of being totally true to yourself. Mm-hmm. And you walk on true to yourself, but you need to understand yourself. And I think that's the process which is important. You can come on in a very, very gentle, humble, head down, introverted way. But that if that's, gen- if that's you, then you draw the audience into your spirit mm-hmm. and you can have the dialogue. So I think it's, there's no right or wrong way. It's the, the, there's only a, a genuine way. Which I, is think that, I think there is, a, for me as an audience member, thinking as an audience member, I think there is a bottom line for me, which is I want to look on the stage and see the performers... Um, apparently enjoying themselves. I've been to endless concerts where I've looked at performers on stage and thought, I'm not sure that you really want to be here. And and on some level, if if you don't, you might be playing the notes and you might be playing them beautifully. But, but actually, I want to see that you want to be there. Do, do you know I, what I, mean? I agree with you, but I think that I think I have seen players, young players, who've obviously been told this and they've been shown how to do it. And it may be exactly what you're saying that it's not authentic and it's not because they're in the moment; it's because they they know they have to. So I've seen players like that and and just been annoyed by it. And, and that's even, yeah, that's even worse. <laughs> so it's yeah. distracting yeah. then when when they're well, told. Well, it's just to be. yeah, or it's yeah, okay, just right. a little bit, and it just feels a little bit fake. 
Whereas I've seen the greatest, for example, cellist in the world, you know, do none of that, and yet I've been moved beyond anything. I saw the Scottish Ensemble do, uh, I can't remember anything on the programme now, but it was remarkable, uh, and I'd never seen them play before, uh, and it was at Milton Court. Matt, Matt Truscott was leading, um, and they were all completely in it, and it was just, it was the most electric experience. Um, I'd seen another orchestra the week before, whose name I'm not going to say, who looked really tired and rather sort of, oh. and I just, I just wanted to go on stage and go, come on, I'm here, I'm up for it, I want to see you up for it as well. I take your point about don't fake it, but I, I just, you know, I want to see some oomph. It just, it worries me that that young players are taught to behave well on stage rather than taught what you're talking about, Hugo, mm. about that sort of authentic mm. being in the moment, and that, that sort of worries me that it's a little bit... Okay, well, I'll I'll not make that a requirement um, uh, for any future concerts. But I think people can come on with a totally electrifying personalities, but be very, very, very small in their gestures. But you just hmm. their aura expresses something, um, and and it is I, as it's, you can't put it on. You can't no, smile on no. stage if you're not generally feeling because it just looks it looks awful. I think if you have yeah if. Um, and as many of us are taught, yeah, you need to smile on stage. That I don't think at all. I think you need to be taught to absolutely love what you're doing. Then the smile is there, or it might not be there, depending on your character. But people will feel that. Uh, what is it? Oh, sorry, you, you've got your hands up in the air. You must ask your question. Well, no, I, I just wonder, you know, in the, in the trajectory of someone's career, of anyone's career, can you do that every night for, like, 300 night concerts mm. a, a year? How does, how does that pan out, having that sense of joy? <laughs> I, I, I think one can, but um, that's, and I do. Every concert for me is, is is something special. I'm not saying I enjoy every concert as much as each concert, but I think that's something. Again, I th- I think it is the danger of the sort of the slightly mach- machinery, the sort of classical, sort of the traditional career type thing when one is just going from place to place playing the same repertoire um, and not really interacting either with the orchestra one goes along and one plays one has one rehearsal plays the concert and disappears I think there is a danger in that sort of um, life that it is it does become a job but I think if one is always passionate and, and loving it and for me it's a lot about doing things with different people lots of different repertoire um, and then every occasion is is a totally unique special occasion and but you every individual needs to take care of their own life and, and do it in such a way I think that that is possible um, I'm, it strikes me that we didn't actually ask you what the name of the album was or indeed spoken anything about the festival that you're okay. here <laughs> to talk about it feels terribly important to me that you should mention that yeah, well the, the album's called White Light mm-hmm. The Space Between Us White Light um, being from a, a quote from Art of Pert who says um, summarised that basically the music is the white light and each individual is a prism who creates the colours um, and I think for, for me that's very much how I see see performance we, we create something which every listener filters through their history filters through their their emotional spiritual lives and experiences in a very unique way and going back to this sort of active listening and really bringing people into that awareness of themselves aware that they're listening so that's the idea behind the white light the space between us is a quote from one of the Beatles songs in the album called within us within oh, 
Within you without. Within you without. You. Yeah, within you without. Sorry, my mind's gone. Within you without you. I was worried there um, for a moment because yeah. you were looking at me and I was thinking, I have no, no, absolutely okay. no idea. He's on his own. Sorry, my mind, my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank there. God you're here, Ariel. Um, which is one of the songs which which um, they wrote um, inspired by their trip to India, and hence the relationship also to the the Indian music on the on the album. And the space between us in the, the program, what, what are the, the CDs, notes, um, sort of and, and various essays written about the philosophy behind the CD, behind the, behind the music. And I talk about the idea of the space between us. Is it a space which connects us or divides us? What is it? Because um, it can be interpreted either way. And ultimately, I say that music is possibly a, a way to make the space between us as individuals um, relate to one another and connect us. So that's the, the name of the, the album. What a lovely sentiment. That's really, that's really lovely. Uh, and the festival. The festival is, um, so in Sweden is the sort of the, the flagship, as it were, in this beautiful Rokoko Theatre, the oldest theatre in, in Stockholm, in, in Sweden. Um, and it's always combining an old composer and a theme, and then anything can happen. So this year it's Purcell from the ground up which we'll actually be doing a mini version of at the Wigmore on the 7th and 8th of April this um, next month. And the yeah, Purcell from the ground up, obviously the, the relation to the ground bases, the chacons. And so one program, just as an example, is called Spanish Sexuality Transformed, the chacon. And we start with original chacons, original instruments, interwoven with Purcell chacons, and then leading to a bark the Bach Chacon for solo violin. As you see this transformation of this sexy dance form into this sublimated, sort of transfigurated um, Bach. And then at the festival in Sweden, there'll be the Brahms Symphony. It was um, number four with the, the, the Pasakali, but it's slightly too big for the, the Wigmore. <laughs> um, so and I think the idea is that you hear in the Bach, you still sense the origins, you sense this dance, you sense this this sort of raunchy, beautiful Spanish dance within the Chacon, but at the same time totally transformed. So Am I going to embarrass myself if I say I had no idea about that <laughs> at all? Did, did you? Did about you? the Chacon being a, a sexy dance. dance. I also didn't really expect I to didn't. use the word it sexy. Was, it, was it, was banned in Euro it was banned in Europe. Was it really? Yeah, Should um, I have known that? I don't know. No, I have no idea. What, have you just made that up? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing is quite, this I, your marketing I, I, strategy? I, I do make lots of things up, so I'm, but I think it's in, we're improvising, so, so why not? Going to, why, why so not? going to check that out. <laughs> but, um, and maybe, maybe the extreme thing which we're doing in the, in the Wigmore just um, is I've got a rap artist, a beat poet, and a Shakespeare. Sam West will be reciting Shakespeare to Purcell, wow. and then we will sort of vamp the Purcell and sample it and create a beat track for the rapper to comment on the Shakespeare, but with a, a totally funked up Purcell. Wow. So that sort of, and these the ground bases, the ground bases which we've used in the previous concert in the evening. Um, so that's a sort of mixes of the un, unmodern, the old and new. Um, and that's on that's seventh and eighth of April. That's exactly. Is that okay, the first I was time they've had rap in the week. I, yeah, think, I, I think it could be the first time. <laughs> do well, they know what's they? coming? Well, I'm not sure they really do. But um, and another actually another is called um, a lament of consolation up and down a fourth or fourths up and down or down and up. And you've got the famous lament from Purcell um, with the descending fourth. And as this became the the iconic lament, you have the Monteverdi. 
um, and you have Ramon, and so this I- very clear idea of descending fourth. And in the second half, we have the rising fourth with the uh, Albenberg Opus One, the Strauss Metamorphose, and, and is there some sort of consolation? And then at the festival, we actually then the, the third half will be Elton John. We have sort of rock ballads, Elton John, Muse, Resistance. We have Bob Dylan, all the sort of ballads with these rock laments um, transformed once again into the into, into our own culture. How very interesting. That's really, the, um, there's there's one other thing I need to ask you about your biography. I'm sorry, I did this to the last person, um, which is, what is, what is kinetic painting and rock balance? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not really. I'm sorry, and it's been left to the last bit of the the sentence, okay, which right. clearly means that the PR wants us to read that. Okay, I'm not quite sure. Well, um, yeah, the um, rock balancing. It was, um, I commissioned a piece by English composer Tommy Hewitt Jones about oh, yes. f- three years ago. Um, and which was inspired by the the Parthenon Frieze in the British Museum. It was a 40-minute cantata for orchestra, choir and soloists. And I asked a wonderful um, rock balancer, Michael Grab from Canada, um, to basically recreate the building of the Parthenon in balanced rocks. And what he does is, as simple as it sounds, he balances rocks on one another. But in a way, you look at them and think, how on earth? Do those not fall over? And I recommend just just looking looking online. Michael Grab rock balancing. It's within the demands of risk assessment form. That's what it sounds uh, like to uh, me. Sort of. It had okay. Certainly elements of risk. And <laughs> and what's beautiful is this is it's an incredibly meditative practice which he's doing. And it's a sort of for him just like we're making contact with the bow and the string. He's just feeling these rocks where the balancing points are. And it takes him for each rock he places on top. There's, there's a, Ah, yes. And then the next one. And to have this during the performance of this cantata, it just creates a visual sort of contemplation at the same time. The way you describe it, it sounds a little bit like there's uh, a series of uh, moments of tension followed by resolution. Is that that what you mean? Exactly, as as music. And I think there is this moment and the last rock comes up and I remember in the performance one of the things actually fell over and made an enormous <laughs> sound and so people after that realise actually this these can fall over it's not um, just they're not glued or anything like that this this is this, there's an element of of we don't know and this the whole sort of heightened experience um, was very, very special and then as a performer you feel this this sense of listening and looking and all the senses being involved. Is it time to end when you end, or does it? Is it and, and again, he he basically built, I think it was six structures, um, and ended miraculously um, on the last court. And that, <laughs> that I'm afraid was um, he, that couldn't be planned. Um, he wasn't going to start building a new one, but he could have been in the middle of a, a structure. But he actually literally finished putting on the last last rock as we were entering the last court. Sounds very John Cage. Yeah, it I makes mean, me I, think of John stuff. Cage. I'm afraid is one of my absolute um, <laughs> my loves. Oh, oh well, good. Yeah, I so. thought you could say I couldn't stand him. <laughs> no, John Cage is, is daily daily reading. Right. I remember at university um, studying. I don't know what it was called, but I remember looking at some scores, and it was a. a, a a piece of music where the pianist, it was just a piano and a bale of straw, mm. and the pianist was 
the piece began when, when the pianist started feeding the straw to the piano and the piece would end, and it said this in the manuscript, <laughs> mm. the piece would end um, when, the, when the piano had decided that it had had enough straw <laughs> or the pianist had decided that the piano had had enough straw or there was no more straw left. Mm. And I loved that. Yep. I absolutely, because it just completely, uh, I mean, it infuriated my parents because they couldn't believe it, but because they thought that's, that's not music, that's, that's appalling. But I loved the way it freed my mind up. Mm. Um, okay, so that's rock balancing. And there's a, qu- a quote from, painting. A, a, oh, sorry. A quote from John, John Cage, which summarizes a lot of the festival is, "Let reinvent the past and revise the future." So reinvent the past, revise mm. the future. And this is very much at the heart of all modern. So we, we revere and respect and love tradition. Um, but reinvent it daily. Tradition is always living. It's always now. Um, and likewise, the future is sort of encapsulated in, in, in the present. But kinetic, kinetic painting, um, it was an artist who, very briefly, but he has five projectors, um, and they're sort of water paints on each one. And we were doing Listuada Soldat, and he basically painted the ballet live as we were performing so it's just you see him painting you see projected what he's painting on a big screen mm-hmm. and he was we um we we didn't have the actors for l'histoire but we we had him actually painting painting the ballet lovely so it sounds maybe more complicated than than reality <laughs> <It> sounds very <laughs> grown up and sensible um is there anything else that you'd like to say that i haven't asked well i'm intrigued but the you were saying you do there's indian music on and on the new CD, have you learnt the Indian classical scales? Are you? Well, I, we, we were working with um, an incredible tabla player, Sukhvinder Singh, and um, Shumik Datta on the, the Sarod, who obviously are, uh, brought up in that tradition. And then someone, um, a wonderful cellist called Matthew Bali, oh, who's obviously very involved and, and has worked a lot with Indian musicians. So he was very much leading and, and coaching us and, and telling us. Um, and teaching us along with Sukhvinda and and uh, Shulmik. So we were, I wouldn't say we, um, one is, one feels like one's a total, be- sort of minus grade eight when one starts um, <laughs> learning this this music. So I think what I would say is we, we entered it with a spirit of, of freedom, um, not saying we've got to play this classical raga in this certain way, but entering the spirit of the music, I would like. And, and, and I, for me, um, India is so so close to my heart, and I, we, actually, I'm taking the orchestra there next, no, this month, in three weeks, where I'm going going with the orchestra to perform and work with children and create a create a performance with children there. So for me, India is very much of my part of my life. Um, but I would, I'm as I say, when it comes to actually the knowledge, I, I'm minus grade eight. Um, but I I think it's a love for it and a curiosity among my players as well that we we explore and um and together with the indie musicians who who lead us and help us and together with matt hopefully created something which won't offend too many indians (laughs) (laughs) thanks to ariane and hugo for joining me for this podcast you can find ariane on twitter at ariane todes that's t-o-d-e-s ariane todes all one word um you can find her on twitter there uh, and you can find me at Thoroughly Good on Twitter or like the Thoroughly Good page on Facebook or you can contact me at john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me. Uh, the Thoroughly Good podcast is available via iTunes, Spotify and Audio Boom, or you can find it on the Thoroughly Good blog at thoroughlygood.me. <laughs>